Well, it's been a pleasure to be here with you so far. Uh, last night was great. Everything's been great so far. Everybody's taken wonderful care of me. I want to extend a warm thank you to this church for all the hospitality you've shown. And uh, I'm sorry, I can assure you that you will not get out by noon today. <laughs> don't look at your clock. Why don't we open with a word of prayer before I get started with this morning's message. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the blessing of the Sabbath. We want to thank you for the lives that were dedicated to you this morning. May you bless them and guide them, help them to live by your word, and may we all understand your word better and what you desire for our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I'm going to continue to talk to you about media. Last night we talked about it from a more scientific perspective. The effects that it has on your brain. Uh, how advertisers and marketers are very savvy. How they understand how to get your body to release those natural things that are inside of you. How to manipulate your emotions and get you to buy their product. But it's a little bit more than that, we learned. Oftentimes, they're putting out messages that they want to use to affect the way that you think. So that was, that was all about the science last night. And this morning, we're going to go more into history and the theology of why I think this is a very important topic. This morning, the sermon is called Channels. And the subtitle is, I've given it a couple of different ones, but this morning it's Science screens, and seance. When you look up the word channel in the Oxford Dictionary, this is the definition that it gives you. It says a medium for the communication or the passage of information. Right? But when you think of a channel, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, you think of a television, right? You think about that remote and going through the however many channels there are now. I stopped in a hotel recently and I was just seeing how, many, how far does this go? I mean, these things go on forever now. It's like, how does anybody decide? The definition, though, when we think of a channel, is much older than what we think of when we think of our televisions. Um, the word channel was first used more to describe a person, a person that was in communication with, well, who do you think they were in communication with? The spirits or the dead, right? All right. Television or media in general is the fastest way that I can think of to spread messages. But it's not all bad. People get the idea that a lot of ministries are out there to uh, tell you that, you know, all this stuff is evil and you should just throw it out the window. I don't think that's true at all. In fact, it would make me a hypocrite because I work in media ministry full time. And there are things I think that you should watch for your own edification. But technology in general, I believe, has a lot of benefits. It is also... The best, well, not the best way, maybe necessarily, but one of the fastest ways that we can certainly spread the gospel. And if you think about the world that we live in now, you can be just about anywhere and tune in 
to some kind of Christian broadcast, right? AWR is beaming radio signals to places where people can't go, right? It's a wonderful use of technology. I think many ministries are using it um, in that benefit. But I also think of the medical world, right? Where would we be today without the modern advances in technology in medicine? There are some people who simply would not be alive, right? So technology has a lot of interesting benefits. Another, um, another use I can think of is, how many of you have heard of a God pod? Anybody? Oh, a, couple, a couple of you. A God pod is a solar-powered audio device. You can put any audio language that you want in the world on it. And you take it to these remote places because it's solar-powered. It doesn't need any batteries and, or electricity. And you simply just hook it up to an audio source and it can play the Bible in whatever language you need to in any part of the world. It's fascinating. Why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 this morning? We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. I find over and over again that when we are looking at ways to explain the world that we live in now, much of it can be traced to the early chapters of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1, and I'll just start reading. Here it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest what? You die. And the woman, or sorry, and the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What is it that the serpent had to say about what God said? It's absolutely not true, right? It's hogwash, rubbish, don't listen to him. All of that is garbage. The word subtle here... Um, if you look at the Hebrew, it's translated like crafty, right? And if you know anything about the occult, you know that the, the term that they use to describe what it is that they do is the craft, okay? That's what they call it. That word can be traced to a much older word. It's a pre-Indo-European word. And the meaning of this word means to turn, okay? And the context of that is a... Um, a ship, um, we could apply it to an airplane today. If you travel uh, by ship or by plane, you know that you have to chart a course. And the reason you chart a course is because you want to get where you're going. If you alter that course by, this, by even one degree, are you going to get where you need to go? No. The same idea that's employed here is the same idea that you will read in the book Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian is on his way to the heavenly city, he is on this path, right? This narrow path. And as he walks along this path, he notices that there's a much nicer path next to him. 
It's grassy, it's softer, it's much easier to travel. And since he can see the path that he's supposed to be on, he steps off the narrow path and gets on this other path. And he walks on that path for some time, feeling very secure because he can see the path to the heavenly city. And he goes on that path for a long, long way, not noticing that it actually veers from the path that he's supposed to be on. And he winds up in a place called despair, which they say almost none can escape from. That's the same idea that's being employed here with the language. Satan wants to turn you from the path enough that you won't notice, but you won't wind up where you want to be. I think it's interesting here that he uses a medium, a serpent, right? And I think the reason for that is lies need a disguise. They do not hold up under the scrutiny of the truth. They have to have some kind of distraction to divert the mind from discerning the truth. So if we take our Bibles and go back one chapter, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. So Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Here it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in that day you eat thereof, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. As far as I can tell in Scripture, this is the first thing that God asks them not to do. And what was the consequence? It was death, right? Death has always been the consequence for sin from the very beginning. So, I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about death. Okay? It's going to be pertinent to the rest of the information. We need to understand what it is that happens when you die. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Right? So here, for you that like math, we have an equation. This equation is the dust of the ground plus the breath of life gives us what? A living soul. Now, if we were to remove one of those two components that we were to add together, we would no longer have a living soul. Okay? The Bible also teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it says, who only has immortality? Do you know who the who is here? This is God. So God, it says it's exclusive to God. He's the one that has immortality and him only. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 and 54, you will notice that there are people who are given immortality. These are the saints. But it has to be bestowed upon them. In other words, they don't have it already, right? Because God is the only one who has immortality. Then when they receive it, now they have it. But prior to that, they do not. <clears throat> the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, 
Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the Son is mine. The soul that sins, what happens to it? It does die. The Bible is clear. We die. We do not continue to live. We are mortals. And if you look up that word in the dictionary, it means subject to death, not life in another dimension somewhere else or continuing on. Ecclesiastes 9.5 tells us, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know how much? They don't know anything, right? Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. If they don't know anything, how much information could they possibly have for you and I? They would have none, right? And so this verse, I think, is fascinating because it gives us a clue into the very purpose of spiritualism, and that is to pass or convey information, just like we looked at the definition of a channel, right? Psalm 6.5 says, For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? Psalm 115.17 is also clear. The dead praise not the Lord, nor any that go down into silence. Now we know that King David was the one who wrote many of the Psalms. And you would think if there was anybody that was going to be praising the Lord at death, it would be that man. He would be among them, right? The Bible is also clear, though, in Acts chapter 2. It says, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. The Bible tells us David is not ascended into the heavens. And if he's not ascended into the heavens, where must he be? He must be in the grave. So now we're going to take what I'm going to call a bit of a short walk. Because if you don't believe that when you die, you are dead, then there is a very real possibility that you can believe that you can communicate with the dead. All right? And if you believe that, then you're in a very dangerous position for, I believe, two reasons. Number one, I don't know of a biblical example where someone was communicating with the dead and it turned out good. Or it was condoned. And number two, you're being put in a position where it would be very difficult for you to withstand. Why is that? When people participate in that type of communicative event, the same technique that we learned about last night with advertising, the positive emotional attachment, is the same technique that would be employed here when people communicate with their dead friends and family. It starts to stir up all of those emotions, right? These are people that you knew, you loved, right? People that you would still want around. And if they were to come and tell you something, it would be very hard for you to not believe it, right? Very hard. Because our emotions can be manipulated. Well, you might think, what in the world does that have to do with media? And we're going to talk about that. How many of you like history? A few of you. Not, not too many, though. That's okay. Maybe a few more. I loved history when I was in school. 
I, I liked it so much that my classmates did not like me <laughs> because my history teacher in junior high graded on a curve and that was never necessary. So, um, history tells us that those who do not learn from it, what happens to them? Yes, they are bound or doomed to repeat it, and we don't want to be among those people. So let's go through a quick history lesson. I will probably go through some of this a little bit quicker than normal. Um, if you're intensely curious and you want to know, I have much more information on this, um, I can explain it to you at lunch. But I'll go through it somewhat quickly this morning. In the 1870s, science started seeing a lot of breakthroughs in many technologies that you have either used in your lifetime or um, maybe even still used today. Some of them are being a bit phased out. They started developing things like telephones. Those are not to scale, by the way. And televisions, right, which are smart. They can even listen to our conversations now. And radios, right, which you can beam these radio signals from outer space, from satellites, and right into your car. And audio recorders, all kinds of fancy little gadgets, right? Who were the inventors of these technologies? What did they believe? And more importantly, what were they trying to achieve with the use of these technologies? That's what we need to discover this morning. So we're going to start with television. Two influential inventors of television um, in slightly different periods. The older one is Sir William Crookes. He was a scientist in Victorian England. And John Logie Baird, he was a Scotsman. Crookes invented the cathode ray tube, the radiometer, and discovered the element thallium. Now, how many of you remember these terribly heavy square boxes called a CRT monitor? Anybody here remember those? Yes. Nobody wants to carry those. That's why we invented LEDs, right? Well, the CRT in that is the cathode ray tube. It's just like the old televisions. They have this cathode ray tube inside of them, and that's what helped uh, make your picture, okay? We've more or less phased that technology out as much as possible. Those things were too heavy. Um, but he's the guy that invented that, okay? Well, he had a brother named Philip, and in 1867, his brother died. And after that, a friend invited him to a seance, him and his wife. And so he went. And after he went, he... Uh, he confided in a friend about the experience. He wanted to tell him that all of this actually helped lead to his inventions. And this is what he said. I'm a one-idea man. All of my discoveries have emanated from the idea that light must have a force of its own. This idea came to me as a result of some experiences at a seance. And in trying to discover this force, I hit upon the radiometer, right? Another one of his inventions. Dividing this, I discovered thallium, and discoveries have branched out one from another, all resulting from this one idea, right? After attending many seances, he was very convinced about what he saw. And the Victorian scientific mind at that time did not believe that, uh, that this was something that couldn't be explained by science, okay? They thought, it, there has to be a scientific explanation for all of this. We don't believe it's anything religious or 
uh, spiritualistic or weird or anything like that. We believe that science is behind all of it. Okay? He was a very highly acclaimed scientist of his day, top dog. And so the scientific community of the day commissioned him to start studying seances and mediums and all of this kind of stuff. And he started bringing it into his home. And so all the table tilting and things flying across the room and what have you, he would study all of that. And after he got done, he published a report. And the report didn't make the scientific community very happy. Because he basically said, I cannot find a scientific reason for any of this. There has to be another explanation. And he was criticized heavily for uh, coming to that conclusion. In fact, they started hurtling all kinds of things at him. It's like, oh, well, you're old and senile and your memory's going. Or you, your eyes are bad because you're so old. Anything and everything that they could throw at him, they could. And had he been a man of lesser reputation, it probably would have completely ruined his career. Now, this is what he said at his presidential address before the Bristol Society in 1898. One other interest I have not yet touched, to me the weightiest and farthest reaching of all, no incident in my scientific career is more widely known than the part I took many years ago in certain psychic researches. And what does he say about that? He says, there exists a force exercised by intelligence differing from the ordinary intelligence common to mortals. Twenty years later, he hadn't changed his mind, and he said this, it's been quite true that a connection has been set up between this world and the next. One of the mediums that he studied in his home was a young lady by name of Kate Fox. And if you know your history, that name will sound familiar because the Fox sisters were, um, you could say, responsible for starting the spiritualism movement in this country, in New York. Not very far, actually, from William Miller. What was it that inspired him to do all of this research? Well, if we go back to it, he said it was communicating with the dead. I think it's also interesting that there's a woman named H.P. Blavatsky. And she said that Crookes, um, his work in chemistry was great. She said all the things that he was doing uh, upheld her beliefs. And she was uh, the founder of what's called the Theosophical Society. She said that everything that he was doing made theosophical beliefs undoubtable, that it was resembled what she called ancient wisdom. Now, this is an interesting woman. She's probably the second most prolific female writer in history. And to put it bluntly, she was essentially a Satanist. Here is a quote from her book, The Secret Doctrine, so you can get a flavor of what she believed. She says, The devil is now called darkness by the church, whereas in the Bible he is called the Son of God, the bright star of the early morning, or Lucifer. There is a whole philosophy of dogmatic craft in the reason why the first archangel who sprang from the depths of chaos was called Lux, the luminous sun of the morning, or manvantric dawn. He was transformed by the church into Lucifer or Satan, because he is higher and older than Jehovah and had to be sacrificed to the new dogma. So, her and all of us are not exactly on the same page. Another very influential inventor was, a was this uh, man named John Logie Baird. 
And he approached um, television from more of a mechanical means, but where he really excelled was he was a broadcast pioneer okay, in broadcast TV. And some authors write about him. They say he was attending spiritualist seances and that dead inventors passed messages to him uh, and promising to help him in his work. Uh, they also said that he had re uh, reported that he had successfully contacted uh, Edison, who by that time was deceased. What about the telephone? Everybody's probably heard of the guy on the left. Fewer people remember Thomas Watson, but Thomas Watson was Edison's famed assistant. Well, it just so happens that Bell, he was corresponding with his aunt. Her name was Mabel. And she would write him letters. And in one of the letters she wrote, she talked to him about Crooks's work and said, hey, you really need to take a look at this. This guy's delving into the supernatural. This is really interesting stuff. I think you'd be interested. And so they corresponded back and forth about it. And he started to look into it. In fact, we know from history that... There we go. He and his brother had signed an agreement, a pact, that whoever died first, they would contact the other one through a more reliable channel than the seance medium. And the reason I say reliable is because as he progressed in his life, he had many doubts about this phenomenon. And so he wanted to use something other than that. The reason this promise was made, though, is because his brother had a wife named Mellie. And Mellie lost her one-year-old son to tuberculosis. After that experience, she started going to seances to communicate with her dead son. He said this, I will remember how often in the stillness of the night I've had little seances all by myself in the half hope, half fear of receiving some communication. Watson, though, he was a lot more serious about his spiritual beliefs than uh, Bell was. And it manifested itself in the work that he's doing. And many authors have recorded uh, what, he, what he did. They tell us that he was trying to experiment with a telephone as an aid to spiritual communication. They tell us that he attended nightly seances and made many successful connections to the dead. They also told us that his spiritual beliefs colored his views of science and vice versa. And that what he was trying to do was find um, a logic, if you will, for the highly illogical wrapping and table tilting of the seance circle. Another one writes that he secretly sought out the advice of a medium when they came to a critical juncture in Bell's experiments, trying to give that telephone production a bit of a boost. What about radio? Sir Oliver Lodge and Marconi, two very influential inventors. Lodge was a British physicist. He held many patents in wireless telegraphy. And he was fascinated with the idea of spiritualism. Uh, one thing that really drove that was that he, um, he lost his son, and I believe it was in World War I. Lost his son, and he was 21 years old when, his, when he died. His name was Raymond. <clears throat> and so he started going to seances to call up his dead son and communicate with him. And he recorded all of that, and he compiled it to a book named after his son, and in that uh, book, he would tell about the things Raymond would tell him. Raymond would tell him about heaven. And 
Uh, one of the things that Raymond told him was that heaven was full of cigars and whiskey sodas, which just happened to be two of his vices. <clears throat> Marconi pioneered long-distance radio transmission. In fact, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in Physics for that achievement. And we know that he, like Crooks and Bell and others, believed in the power of seances. History tells us that he attempted direct communication with the spirits using radio signals. We also know that, you know, it's recorded he believed in spiritualism, the continuation of life after death, the ability to communicate with those in spirit. And we know that he spent the last few years of his life trying to perfect an electronic device that would establish some sort of communication between this world and the next. What about audio recorders? Well, this man is probably the most famous out of the whole bunch. He holds almost 1,100 patents. Prolific inventor and scientist, right? Like Crooks, though, it's interesting. He was a member of the Theosophical Society that Blavatsky had started. And this is what most people probably don't know. One author recorded that a gentleman in Port Huron, Michigan, writing to Mr. Eggleston of New York, states as follows, I have known Thomas Edison from a boy and all his father's family. His parents were good spiritualists. And his son, William Pitt Edison, was a pronounced believer in the phenomenon. And I understand that Thomas is also a believer in spirit return, mediumship, and that um, he does not talk upon the subject except to persons he is very familiar with. So that's why you don't necessarily find in your history books that Thomas Edison was a spiritualist, because he was very, very careful about who he talked to and shared his beliefs. One author writes that he believed that an electronic device could be built to communicate with the dead. In fact, he was working on such a device before he died. He didn't leave behind any plans, and so we have no idea, you know, what he had come up with. But essentially, you might say that Edison was a ghostbuster. Scientific American published an article about this, I think it was in 1920, uh, that he was working on this experiment, trying to trap spirits. There's a three-page article, and that's the PDF scans. What's fascinating to me is this quote, this last quote, was come from a book by a man named Peter Ackroyd. And the last name Ackroyd might sound a little bit familiar to you. And the reason is because Peter Ackroyd is the father of the famous Canadian actor Dan Ackroyd. And Peter Ackroyd wrote a book called A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Medium, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters. And so this book, he chronicles his family's history that goes back into the mid-1800s and their involvement with spiritualism. The family had their own seance medium in Canada, and that was their nightly entertainment. I think it was Dan's great-great-grandfather. And um, this medium would tell them all kinds of things that was happening in the world. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the medium was almost right, well, it was always right about the event, but never right about the timing. So they would tell the family, for example, there's going to be an earthquake in Chile in three weeks. And there would be an earthquake in Chile, but it would be either in two weeks or four weeks or some other time frame. Dan Aykroyd himself says this, am I a trance medium? No. Have I got a gift psychically? Absolutely not. But I do believe in the survival of consciousness after death. 
He says, I've always been a big fan of science fiction, of the worlds of the spiritual and the mystic. He also talks about the American Society for Psychical Research Journals that were all around the house when he was a kid. And speaking of his great-grandfather, who was a dentist in Kensington, Ontario, said he was an Edwardian spiritualist researcher who was very interested in what was going on in the invisible world, the survival of consciousness. He was interested in precipitated paintings and mediumship and trans-channeling, all these things. And he flat out says, I am a spiritualist, a proud wearer of the spiritualist badge. Which is fascinating to me because he was the writer of this movie. So he's not really just making a movie. He is also sharing his spiritualist beliefs with you on screen as you're watching. But it goes back farther than that. People have been trying to influence uh, this idea for a long time. Charles Dickens is famous for A Christmas Carol. And do you remember in The Christmas Carol, there is a spiritualist component. Do you remember what it is? It's ghosts, right? Of Christmas, past, present, and future. So before there was film and movies and everything like that, people were introducing these ideas through books. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, who's famous for the Sherlock Holmes stories, right? He was a spiritualist as well. Both of these guys were members of the Ghost Club with Crooks and Oliver Large. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle also wrote a book, though, on the history of spiritualism. Now, oftentimes when we look at history, we like to um, compartmentalize it. This happened over here, and this happened over here, and this happened over here. What we don't do often is integrate history, realizing that many of these things were actually going on simultaneously. So if you go back in history, you'll notice there was an event called the Second Great Awakening. Protestantism was sweeping across America, and it started about 1820, okay? It was so successful That one preacher of the day said, you could not go, speaking about upstate New York, you could not go to a house where they had not heard the name of Christ. Okay, they had done their evangelism very well. Peter Ackroyd actually writes about this event in his book. And he writes about the Millerite movement and how this was happening at the same time or right before the Fox sisters and all the spiritualist activity that was happening in New York. Actually, there were many different things that were happening about the 1840s. 1840s is responsible for the Great Disappointment. It's also the rise of Mormonism. It's also when Charles Darwin was publishing his theory of evolution. Right? Lots of activity was happening around that time. And when we get to the Millerite movement and they experience this great disappointment, it's interesting to me what the devil had on the horizon. About 1846, two years later, there's, this is when the Fox sisters start, right? And this, this movement went from quite a few people in America down to very, very few, very few. 
And I see this as the devil's opportunity to say, you know what? You all were really wanting to see something spectacular. You wanted to see the greatest audiovisual event in this earth's history, right? The second coming. That's what these people were waiting for. He's like, you know, you're disappointed. Why don't you come over here? I've got something for you to see. And so tables start tilting. Things start flying across the room, right? People start getting messages from the other side. Many who were disappointed were ripe for the deception soon to be propagated thereafter. The Bible says in Isaiah 8, 19, And when they shall say to you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? The Bible tells us precisely where to look for our wisdom. You can see the contrast if you go to Hydesville, New York, New York today. There is a plaque which may be difficult to read, so I'll try to read it for you. This is at the home of the Fox sisters. Okay, It says this, Spiritualists of the world in commemoration of the advent of modern spiritualism at Hydesville, New York, March 31, 1848, and in tribute to the mediumship, the rock iron, which demonstrable spiritualism forever stands, there is no death, there are no dead. In direct contrast to the word of God. Our scripture reading this morning do you remember what it told us? If we go there again, actually I have it on my notes here. It says, now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall do what? They will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Media is a vehicle. It is a very powerful tool. Some have different ideas on how it can be used. Media can be used for things that are very, very good. And they should be used for things that are very good. But how do you use the tool? One person looks at a gun and they say, this is my way out of poverty. Another person looks at the same gun and they say, this is a way to protect my family. Right? How do you use the tool? Despite the fact that this can be used for good, the truth of today is that most people do not. Right? If you were to survey all of what's being broadcast in the world, what percentage do you think is actually proclaiming the gospel? Very little. Here's where the rubber really meets the road, though. When you are consuming what the world has for you, it does one very, very dangerous thing. It dulls your mind to sin. And if your mind is dulled to sin, do you know what happens after that? You do not see your need for Jesus. And that is what's termed fatal security. Right? You think that you're safe, but you're in a very deadly position. Because if you're not coming to Jesus, you're not safe. The devil has you in his crosshairs. That's why you have to be careful what you put into your mind. I want to read to you some quotes that I think are very impactful. They come from a man who's named Anton LaVey. How many of you heard of Anton LaVey? A few of you. He's responsible for founding the Church of Satan in this country. Okay? 
He says there are television sets in every home, every restaurant, every hotel room, every shopping mall, and now they're even small enough to carry in your pocket like electronic rosaries. This man died in 1992, before we had these. Now back then we had the little Sony, you know, Walkman television things, right? But it's eerie how similar it is to our day. He says, it is an unquestioned part of everyday life, kneeling before the cathode ray god with our TV guide concordance in hand. We maintain the illusion of choice by flipping channels and verses, or channels, chapters and verses. He also said the birth of TV was a magical event, foreshadowing its satanic significance. The first commercial broadcast was aired on Walpurgisnacht, April 30th, 1939, at the New York World's Fair. Since then, TV's infiltration has been so gradual, so complete, that no one even noticed. People don't need to go to church anymore. Why? They get their morality plays on television. I hope that you are not getting your morality from television. Because if you were to see what's on there today, there is none. Now, why did he say that it foreshadowed its satanic significance. Well, the date that he mentioned is significant. Walpurgisnacht is the second most sacred day in paganism. It's second only to Halloween. Okay? Now, last quote from him. It says, The TV set, or satanic family altar, has grown more elaborate since the early 50s. From the tiny fuzzy screen to huge entertainment centers, covering entire walls with several TV monitors. What started as an innocent respite from everyday life has become itself a replacement for real life. For millions, a major religion of the masses. This man is from the other side and essentially saying, you know what? It was always going to be bad. That's what it was designed for. Now, can God use these technologies for good? Absolutely, God can. But you should be wary. You should actually be very wary of the fact that spirits wanted to help develop all of this technology. Matthew 24, 24 tells us, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. The Bible is clear in the last days. You are going to see things and hear things that are designed to mislead you. Right? If I could put it another way, the audiovisuals will be overwhelming. What's the big picture? Television or media is the fastest way I know of to spread error. Right? Mass communication. And if you want to fill your mind with the right kind of messages, then guess what? You have to be getting them from a good source. The purpose in Eden, in using a medium, was to discredit the Word of God. And the purpose of spiritualism, and I'll tell you right now, in a lot of media, it is rampant with spiritualism and spiritualistic ideas. There's a ton of it out there. But the purpose of spiritualism at the end of time is to also discredit the Word of God. That's why it's so very dangerous. And we have to be careful what we put into our mind. A lot of people have this idea today that it doesn't affect me. What they're really saying is this. 
it doesn't change what I, what I think. Nothing can change what I think because I'm in control of my thoughts, right? And I can't be influenced otherwise. If you couldn't be influenced otherwise, do you think that advertising companies, large companies, would spend billions of dollars every year all around the world to advertise their product if they couldn't influence your thinking? Do you think that in World War II that Hitler would have, you know, let me back up. In World War II, Hitler used media to influence and teach the people of the day in Germany what he wanted them to know. Do you think he would have done that if it was a complete waste of time and wouldn't have any success? We are dealing with 6,000 years of human degradation. This worked on a perfect pair of people in Eden. We are no match for that. The only way that you are going to stand when it comes right down to it is if you stand on this book. That's why it's important. So be careful what you're putting into your mind. Be informed consumers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to ask today for strength. We want to ask for your spirit to guide us in the right way, to protect us and alert us and show us of the dangers that lie on the path. Help us to keep close to you, Lord Jesus. Hand in hand, we want to walk together to your kingdom. We ask that for the decisions that were made today, those who were baptized and those who are planning to be baptized, that you would help them build their foundation on the word of God and that they would be secured for your kingdom when you come very soon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.